calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Drabblecast, episode 199. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, before we get going here this week, I wanted to mention a little something some of your listeners out there might not be aware of. The Drabblecast Fan Archive. Recently, our MP3 feed hit a few technological bumps due to some gimp-ass software updates and such forth. You may have gotten a few episodes late. Our bad. At the same time, I want you to know that if you're ever wondering, where the hell's my Drabblecast? There is a glorious place you can check. Drabble fan Tom Baker, affectionately deemed Saint Tom by the Drabble community, maintains a site with not just every single Drabblecast episode ever available for download, but also every single Drabblecast episode ever available for download in bulk 25-episode zip file chunks, MP3 and M4A formats. There's a big ol' link to the Drabblecast fan archive right off our main page, drabblecast.org. You can't miss it. Get caught up with the entire history of Drabbly content. Episodes, B-sides, Bartles, Drabble art, all at your fingertips, and all at the amazingly low cost of free. Well, free for you, anyways. While you're at the site collecting on this magnificent Drabble bounty, you might consider throwing us some support via the donation links glaring you in the face. Lot of value up in that Drabble vault there. We're about to hit 200 episodes, and it's the support of listeners like you that have gotten us this far. It's a great time to give and help put some wind in our sails if you've got the means. We do appreciate any amount you can give. So, moving on, it's 100 words story time. This week's travel is called Dead or Alive, and it comes to us from Benjamin Parker. Ben has had a love-hate relationship with zombies ever since Dawn of the Dead scared the living daylights out of him when he saw it at the tender age of 12. Though never completely recovering from the shock, he managed to grow up to become a technical trainer and biblical scholar, and so he divides his working time between industrial processes and Hebrew grammar. He lives in New Babylon with his wife, two daughters, and a son, but they are hoping to make their escape while there's still a chance. The zombie apocalypse came in a way none had anticipated. 
a clerical error at the Social Security office listed 10% of Americans as deceased. When apathetic bureaucrats rejected all petitions, zombies took to the streets in protest. The president, also among the dead, lent his support as commander-in-chief. Most military personnel, zombie or living, remained loyal to him. Seeing no moral barrier to the use of nuclear weapons against the undead, the living launched a full-scale attack. Though no peace treaty was ever signed, relative peace returned when the distinction between living and dead was lost altogether. Yep, gotta watch out for those clerical errors. Speaking of which, tax time's coming up. Make sure you list any zombies in your household as dependents. Because they're dependent on... on brains. Yeah, you got it. Not so different after all, huh? The living and the deceased. The only way to really know in any situation is to get your prince and the pauper on and travel to the other side. Or at least, in between. Hey, zombies are nothing if not empathetic. Yes, folks, when you walk in another man's shoes, you get more than just his planter's warts. You get his perspective. And the more perspectives you understand, the more angles and eyes you have, the more vistas looking down and more murky crevices looking up, the more you'll be able to recognize and appreciate the full contours of truth. And on that note, our feature story this week, In the Octopus's Garden by James S. Dorr. James's collections, Strange Mistresses, Tales of Wonder and Romance, and Darker Loves, Tales of Mystery and Regret, are published by Dark Regions Press, while other work has appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, New Mystery, Aboriginal SF, Fantastic Stories, Cheesine, and numerous anthologies. Dorr is an active member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Keep up with him at jamesdorrwriter.wordpress.com. So, without further ado, we bring you In the Octopus's Garden by James S. Dorr. I remembered pain. Red pain. A sound of thunder crashing around my ears. Blackness and brightness. Words and expressions. I tried to make sense of them. Desert sand. Beaches. Desalination. Meetings in darkness. Meetings at nighttime. And over and over I heard a name. Gallagher. Which I recognized. It was my own name. Then clankings and scrapings as if on a concrete floor. Metal on concrete, a weight, a chain, heavy. My legs wrapped around them, my shoulders, another chain. Blackness and brightness as if a long tunnel stretching endlessly through a dark void yet leading to brightness. A warmth and a joyous feel of completion. I knew of this somewhere, of where I was. What I was. But then, a splashing sound. Then, darkness. Nothing.
I woke to this new darkness swirling about me, a phrase sticking in my mind. Lazarus Syndrome. What happened to people when they died, but for some reason, some lack of death's completion, some unfinished business, had rejoined the living. But there should be doctors, others around me to help pull me through. But there was only darkness and a dull background pain, chafing against my flesh. Had I felt chains before? Memories were fleeting. Somewhere I thought, perhaps, I had been a doctor, or maybe a chemist, a specialist of some sort. But memories were drifting from me. I tried to hold them back. Had I been killed then? I tried to hold that back, that single thought, that I, perhaps, had been killed. Shot in the head, maybe. That was the thunder, shot from behind when I'd gone at night to an assignation, a meeting with someone, the docks of a city, or, no, not the harbor, but farther, closer to its private beaches, the town's water plant, where the ocean was cleaner, the salt removed from it, the chemicals put in. A place of shadows, of secrets and crannies, and assignations. I tried to hold to the thought, who was I meeting? But always the water, the place sloshed with water. I heard the water, the place of the meeting, the place where I was now, a new sound of water. And memories went from me. I tried to hold on. If I hadn't died, I was here for a reason. I felt muscles stiffen as I then realized who said I'd not died. And yet, here I was, feeling the gases of decomposition begin to slowly collect in my body. I felt my bowels loose, smelling the stench in the water around me. I felt my eyes bulging. My eyes were open, and far above, far ahead, there was a new light. But only the light of a morning sun on the sea's surface. Around me, as light increased, I saw brilliant colors, pinks and oranges of a coral reef, blues and aquamarines and purples, the greens of sea plants, the crystal delicateness of medusas, transparent jellyfish drifting toward the shore at the tide's turning. And somewhere, an itching, a sort of tickling. I didn't know what from, but at least I knew this, that I'd been dumped to rot in the ocean. I slept. I woke. I felt gases swell in me, then burst forth from my ears and my anus, while I was still weighted down with iron chains. I felt no sense of time. Time works differently here in the ocean, but only of cycles, only of beginnings as that of the beach that bordered the ocean, the swimmers by bright hours from the resort beach, the one closed to townspeople. I recognized human forms, male and female. Despite my death, I was still human-formed too, at least for those first cycles, even if covered with deep blue-green blotches, enlarging to pustules, spreading to blisters, the flesh tinging purple. Day cycles. Weak cycles, we dead keep no count, except on what seemed its own regular cycle too. One female form, 
in a red thong bikini which would swim above me, frolicking in the warm ocean water. And one time I realized I had an erection, then felt more tickling, the tickling of before, when I realized a fish was devouring me, sucking fluids out of me as far above the cherry thong glistened, separating white, pumping buttocks as she swam on her back, little realizing what watched below her. And also my lips, my eyelids, my tongue were plagued by the tickling, and this time, straining, I saw the tiny crabs crawling sideways across my splitting flesh, watched as the skin loosened, peeled. And I saw from crab eyes, myself, eating my own body in tiny nibbles, weak cycles. Month cycles. Crabs, too, since no time. But I, in an act of will, learned to project myself into these crabs' minds, into the shrimp that browsed the putrescence that had been my fingers, loosening the nails to get at the soft meat that lay beneath them. Never in anything that didn't taste of me. But in those things that did. One crab. Many crabs. Fleets of crabs I became. Crabs and shrimp and schools of bright-colored fish, brighter than even the thong bikini that still on its schedule of surface cycles would visit my ocean. And then I knew fear again. Once a dim memory, a dim, lost memory of what may have been before, but now with crabs' minds, a devouring panic as shadowed spokes, wheel-like, blotted the ocean floor. Chittering, screaming as crabs might scream, I dispersed my multiple-bodied oneness, then stretched my mind out to those fish that had tasted too, seeing above now the reef and its carpet of brightly twisting tentacled polyps and more tentacles below, as the octopus, wheeling, darting, feeling the shredded flesh remnants of myself as a corpse propels on a water stream from its mantle to strike out at crab kind. And I learned the law of ocean creatures, to eat and be eaten, the law of all living things. I felt myself devoured in myriad crab bodies, and felt myself propel up toward the surface, radiating fourteen-inch tentacles behind me. Myself as king, king of this part of the ocean. Small, yes, but in a world of crab and shrimp, sea anemone forests, an emperor of giants indeed. I saw out of an eye far more sharply developed than a human's, the white female form in its cherry red thong swimsuit. And I recognized her. A day cycle, week cycle now as the octopus, eater of eaters, I recognized her. Came to remember her, came to recall her form straddling my own as we wrestled together, human on human, lips pressing lips and chest against chest on sweaty sheets in an apartment bedroom. Looking up, seeing the slowly turning fan on its ceiling, radiating its own octopus limbs. But after that, nothing, except that I knew now my fascination, 
the thong suit I'd bought her. Fascinating, even as octopus, wondering if I might reach with a tentacle, press it where once hands pressed. Wondering if as crab I might pinch where once fingers had pinched, gently, excitingly. And I knew I couldn't. Unless... I concentrated all thought I could gather into a single ball, into my old body, into an act of will, willing myself to rise out of the chains whose weight still pressed me to the bottom. I felt muscles tearing, and what was left of muscles, bones scrape against bones, slowly, searingly, even as what were left of tendons disintegrated into the water. I felt myself as a cloud of bacteria rising like smoke to the surface, just as I heard a scream, felt its vibrations, as hands, strong man's hands reached from a boat's side to pull her up from my grasp, felt a voice, Jesus, is that where you dumped him? My God, the stench, felt another voice answer, the tide must have pulled him out, caught the body against the reef somehow. But don't worry, Magda. Even if someone does find him at this point, there's not enough left to identify who he is. And now, I knew her name. Magda. My Magda. Dark, curly hair. Legs sinewed and supple. Sheets twisting around us. And now, in my human flesh, what was left of it, I felt myself as feasting microbes which, through my will's action, I had formed once more into the shape of a human. I felt flesh memories of larger fish eating my legs, my stomach, an eel twisting into the space of my ribcage. And these I brought to me, using my will to have them swim for me, to follow the boat's shape past the city's desalination plant where I'd been murdered. That memory came back too. The memory of meeting of Magda's panicked call, begging me to meet her at the plant, in the deepest of shadows and maze-like corridors, her lips on mine there, whispering of threats, of information, of foreign secrets, of payments, and yet, as she pulled from me, I heard the thunder, and metal crashed through my spine, pain above pain. Spinning, I saw a man's hands grip a pistol, smoke from its muzzle, man's hands lowering it to a table then calling other men who came with heavy chains. The first man kissing, and I recognized him. I do not remember the circumstances, who was in whose pay, which was which nation, who were the good guys and who were the bad. None of that mattered. None does when one is dead. Communists, neo-communists, fascists, running dog capitalists, right and left wingers, these are just phrases. Like desert sand, beaches shifting in wind and water and tide, not in time, but beginnings. Like death in its cycle, but unimportant, not the incompletion that brought one back from death. Even when it was too late for the body to be revitalized, when it was weighted down and thrown into the ocean, to rot, to disintegrate, to wash in pieces the beach of a whole city, baking in sunlight during its day cycles, moonlight at nighttime. His name was Hansen, the one who'd shot me, the one who'd paid Magda to betray me. I'd known him also when she'd introduced him, claiming to me that he was her half-brother. And I knew who'd paid him. And that didn't matter. 
nor did it either that he was screwing her now instead of me, in my own bed, in my own apartment, under the ceiling fan, that his strong fingers explored what was once mine. Oh yes, I recalled how she looked at him then, after he'd shot me. While others wrapped chains around my body to keep it from floating, the kiss, the whispers. And even that might have allowed me to die in peace. But one thing did matter. That I had trusted. And on the ocean's floor, my octopus form fought a small shark that dared to invade some anemone garden and almost defeated it. And I knew then what I had left to do. One cycle, two cycles. Magda no longer swims in the ocean, not in this part of it. But at the public beach, I have seen her. As flying fish, eaters of flesh-eating shrimp, I have skimmed the water. And as the last of my human form carrion dissolved in the ocean's cleansing current, mixing in water and minerals and microbes, in salt and bacteria, memories grew stronger. The desert, the sand, the city between the sand and the ocean. The infrastructure, the piping and conduits. Once in a past existence, apparently, I had made maps of these things. The beaches, the harbor, and all of me still one. A chemical form now, still held together by strength of will. Unfinished business. As I had seen between the beach and the harbor, a screened duct, too small for fish to swim into, but not for microbes. And in a long pipe, as dark as the void of death, water flows through chlorine, purifying it, courses through filters and chemical baths that desalinate it. Yet no process ever takes everything out, especially not the will once of a living man that took it into its own grasp the nervous system of a small shark, causing it to swim and thrash, to dart at swimmers at the public beach, sending them panicking out of the water, even then following it into the shadows until itself was destroyed on the shore. One more betrayal, and one more reforming as pipes once more widened to tanks for cooling, a will recoalescing, an unfinished business that courses to brightness, a warmth, a promise of final completion, a taking of water throughout the city, and eyes above scouting, those of seabirds that eat small fish. A will that may force any animate being, once it is ingested, to do what it might have, even to tear itself limb from limb, however obscene the thing. To tear a lover, betray or betrayal, to eat or be eaten, to eat and be eaten. As a flash of red, thong against buttocks, a screaming, a running, all in a mind's eye, I see, encompassing, realizing well that no creature living cannot drink water. I search first for Magda.
Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. The seaweed is always greener in someone else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that's a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things surround you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea. Under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. That little Rasta crab was either high on some of that good seaweed man, or he'd been living behind the safe, protected walls of the Mer Kingdom for far too long. Or he was just in an animated Disney movie. The real sea world ain't full of cupcakes, robotic orca whales, and dreams come true, folks. It's eat or be eaten. Eat and be eaten. But think about it for a second. Is it really that much different up here, above the waves? Yeah, of course it is. Are you kidding me? It's totally that much different up here. Come on, what are you, some kind of stoner crab? Walking all sideways like, yo, where the fish concert at, man? Hey, let me get a toke on that. I'm a lobster. Got that chronic. Hey, y'all told me there was pot up in here. This is just a... Oh, hell. Damn homonyms. I like the Dr. Manhattan meets mind control ant parasite meets biomagnification angle in this story. You are what you eat is the easy quote reference. A better one comes from the big naked blue man from the Watchman himself, who said, We're all puppets, Lori. I'm just a puppet who can see the strings. True indeed, Dr. Manhattan. And we're just puppets who can see your dong. So hey, I already asked you folks for donations. Time to thank someone who's really helped out the old Drabblecast in that regard. Our kick-ass donor of the week. Bart Epstein from Arlington, Virginia. In addition to his day job helping run Tutor.com, the world's largest online tutoring and homework help service, check them out at Tutor.com for all your tutelage needs, Bart is an instrument-rated commercial pilot who volunteers for a group called Angel Flight, flying sick kids from rural towns to big cities for life-saving medical treatment. He's also a civilian test pilot for NASA Research, which he says is pretty much as cool as it sounds. And he once killed a chicken with his bare hands, both out of hunger and necessity. Wow. And no, ladies, unfortunately he's not available because I saw him first. So hands off. <laughs> Just playing, he's married. On top of all that though, Bart is chairman of Gifts for the Homeless, a nonprofit that raises money to buy large quantities of warm clothing for the more than 70 homeless shelters in the Washington DC area. He spends much of his free time teaching his three-year-old twin boys how to hawk loogies, yell the alphabet, and fake convincing apologies. Ah yes, the keys to life and any lasting relationship. Bart says that he donates to support the Drabblecast because he's overwhelmed with respect, admiration, and gratitude for all the work and creativity that goes into producing this podcast. And he says that hearing about other strange listeners pitching in to support the show inspired him to do his part. Thanks, buddy. We totally appreciate and admire you, too. And if you're ever forced to kill and eat another live chicken, we hope it'll be one that we inhabit so that we can totally shake your hand by controlling and manipulating your other hand to do so under our bidding. Alrighty, moving on. This week's 100-character story winner, a twabble by first-time winner Pure Chance, also about control. Here goes. When I was young, I played with dolls. Now, I don't have any dolls, so I play with people. Soon, I'll run out of people as well.
unique. Freaky. Try writing one yourself. Post it in our discussion forums. You might be next week's winner. If you do that Twitter thing, you can find and follow us at The Drabblecast. We post the weekly winners out early each week. All right, folks, episode 199 in the bag. We'll see you next week for something special. Also, the winners of the 2010 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. Don't forget to hit up our forums and vote if you haven't already. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks this week's awesome episode artist, Bill Hallier. Bill has a doctorate in Monsterology and Monsteronomy from the Tampa Bay School of Gifted Liars. You can find him at Denny's around 2 in the morning, sitting in a corner booth, feeding fistfuls of sugar packets to Hodges, his pet Peruvian vampire badger. Or at www.roughbeasts.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a couple of tiny wiener-eating fish, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that she's wearing your thong. The evening saunters to closing The waitress turns chairs upside down Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink And the bartender shouts last round An hour ago this place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all slurred when slow Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.